Hello, language lovers, and welcome to another episode of Life in a Second Language with your host, Spring Day, where I interview people of all walks of life about their experience studying, living, working, and loving in a second language, often an adult language, so this podcast may not always be appropriate for young ears. As I said in the last episode, I've decided to take the JPLT Level 1 next year, which is a proficiency test near native Japanese speakers take to measure their ability. It's a test offered only twice a year in select locations around the world, usually in mid-December just before Christmas, as if the holiday season isn't stressful enough. And now it's also available mid-summer. It's an intensive test that takes several hours to complete. Your results are mailed to you a month or more later with your picture on it. It looks like a cross between a monochrome driver's license and a baseball card with the stats front and center all stamped with a massive red Chinese-style stamp from the Ministry of Education or something. It's a nice little trophy to have and gloat over with your Japanophile friends at the karaoke bar ramen shop. My biggest challenge has always been kanji. Japanese has three writing systems, two of which are phonetic and pretty easy to remember, all things considered. The third is kanji, which there are literally thousands of. They are Chinese characters which were imported from China bit by bit over a very, very long period of time and were altered to suit Japanese tastes. Japanese kanji characters are a lot like spices in England in that compared to their origins, their uses arbitrary, confusing, and there's more than a whiff of cultural appropriation. Now, if you were to grow up in Japan, and or the Japanese school system, your teachers would explain in great detail the meanings behind each and every shape of the word, its history, its significance, and an incredible amount of time wouldn't be spent on it. Studying Japanese at an American university, trying to cram thousands of characters into my head for an hour and a half, three times a week for four years while working full-time in the university cafeteria smelling like boiled eggs, on top of taking 12 hours of classes a week, I didn't always get the intricate lowdown I needed. I've done my best to learn kanji characters, mostly through rote memorization, and really struggled to remember these pretzels over the years. And the more sophisticated my vocabulary gets, the more complex these characters become. It's like watching pretzels turn into ink blots, and memorizing new ones just seems harder and harder. Thankfully, I've found a book that's been very helpful. It's called The Kanji Code by Natalie J. Hamilton. The Kanji Code, according to its book jacket, teaches a systematic method of learning the readings of kanji or Chinese characters by detailing the phonetic components and other visual cues so Japanese students don't have to rely solely on rote memorization. Doesn't that sound sexy? Oh, it does. Because the more I read it, the more I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, so that's how that works. I never knew that. (laughs) That answers so many questions. Which is pretty much what I say verbatim every time I have sex. Anywho, I'll keep you posted with my Japanese proficiency test progress next time, whether you want to be or not. (laughs) And now it's time for... The Random Japanese Idiom Corner! Today's idiom is brought to you by emotional eating. Have you caught yourself eating a chocolate bar or two for breakfast because Corona? 
Have you eaten a bowl of cereal in the middle of the night, telling yourself it'll help you sleep? In addition to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, do you have a mealtime called just got off the phone with family? It's probably emotional eating. Emotional eating can be caused by, but not limited to, childhood trauma, recent trauma, trauma happening right now as we speak, otherwise known as the Republican Party. Discovering QAnon isn't a 12-step program for the puppets in Avenue Q. Visiting 4chan for the first time and it making you feel like Craigslist is a wholesome place. And let's not forget accidentally seeing yourself from behind after six months of living in lockdown. Emotional eating wants you to know that it may not be the best for you, but emotional eating is always there for you. This show wouldn't exist without its donation of thousands and thousands of excess calories. Emotional eating is a proud sponsor and producer of this broadcast. Emotional eating can be found wherever depression is sold, trans fat cholesterol included. Today's idiom is kirinji, meaning prodigy, and literally means a baby giraffe or giraffe calf. By the way, did you know that an adult female giraffe is called a cow and that an adult male giraffe is called a bull? I know, right? Who knew cows could be so statuesque? So remember that the next time some Karen calls you a cow for wearing a mask in a shop on her way to scream at the manager. Just think how gorgeous your neck and eyelashes must be. The example sentence given in the Japanese Idioms book, written by Nobuo Akiyama and Carol Akiyama, is Ano onanoko wa kirinji no pianisto desu. That girl is a piano prodigy. Or, that girl is a giraffe calf of a pianist. Which, even if she's terrible at piano, is pretty impressive. I'd pay money to watch a giraffe fuck up a piano, wouldn't you? And that was the Random Japanese Idiom Corner! Thank you, thank you. You have no idea how much you all mean to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Today's guest is the delightful and extremely talented comedian David Mills. A fellow American suburbanite, David tells us about his experience studying abroad in Bolivia at 17 years old, the challenges and rewards of living abroad, and a lifetime of wanderlust. David and I also get into our very similar opinions on American nationalism. I talk a lot more in this one, especially about me turning down my Japanese host mother's offer to find me an arranged marriage, and why. Thanks for giving this podcast a listen. If you like what you hear, wear a mask every time you enter a shop or into a building where there are other people around that you don't live with. Even if you hate the show, just wear a mask when you go into the shops or indoors where there are other people around that you don't live with. I'm telling you, it's much easier to talk shit about a show when you don't have to be hooked up to a ventilator. Well, that's enough of me telling you what to do. It's now time for our interview with David Mills. Enjoy. Damn it, did that seem too passive-aggressive? Eh, whatever. Well, welcome to another show, uh, or another episode, rather, of Life in a Second Language. Today we have the writer actor, comedian, YouTube star, and lounge singer, David Mills. <laughs> Hello, Spring Day. Hello. Hola. Hola. Uh, so tell me, uh, what is your native language and uh, how many languages do you speak? Well, my native language is English and I speak English. Sometimes I wonder if I speak it very well. It's the best language I speak. I speak that language the best. And then I speak Spanish. 
and my Spanish is um, good but rusty, I would say. So when you say rusty, do you mean like you're, you're fine traveling with it, but you wouldn't apply for a job at the UN? I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't apply for a job. It's more sort of Spanish at a party or Spanish traveling or Spanish, you know, in a social situation. But mm -hmm. my, my reading isn't great and my writing's terrible. My comprehension is strong and my, my spoken Spanglish is good. So when did that journey, when did your, your Spanish journey start? Like most American kids, I think I had two choices in, in high school for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you had to take language. So we were given Spanish or German weirdly. And um, I took Spanish. And then in my senior year in high school, I did a rotary exchange to Bolivia in South America. So I lived with a, a Bolivian family for a year. And, you know, obviously they spoke Spanish. And so I learned Spanish. I mean, I, I had some facility from mm -hmm. high school, but really, it's a very different thing than when you actually live somewhere and have to speak it every day. You know, what you learned in high school is rudimentary at best. Right. And what, how old were you again? I, w I was there. My, I was 17 years old. So I turned 18 while I was there. Did you, had you always planned to study abroad or was this? I, I had always wanted to. Yeah. You know, I'd always wanted to travel and yeah, study abroad. So I, you know, I didn't have a lot of choice. Mm -hmm. Rotary Exchange, Rotary, if you don't know, is like a, you know, like a, a social club for adults, I guess, you know, and they had a chapter in our town. They only had a few different places they had exchange with and Bolivia was one of them. And instead of applying for the specific location you were sent, you just applied for the program and they told you where you were going to go. So it was like a lottery, almost. It was a lottery, yeah. And did you know anyone else who had gone to other countries? No, no. I mean, we had all through high school, we had kids come to our school. So I saw what it was like to be the kid, you know, that awkward kid from overseas, somehow trying to make it in high school, you know, a completely challenging experience. But obviously I didn't look very closely. <laughs> so I thought, oh, you know, this will be easy. You know, I mean, it wasn't easy. It was great, but it wasn't easy. Did they, did they interview you for the process? Did you have to like write yep. a paper? All that, yeah, all that. And do you remember any of the questions that they asked you to kind not of- Not really, not really, no. You know, I mean, it's simple things like, why do you want to go and what do you expect to, experience and uh, you know I don't know yeah so how was that experience in Bolivia were you staying in a city were you staying in the countryside I was I stayed in a, a city called Santa Cruz which is the second city so <laughs> Bolivia you may know is that landlocked country in the middle of South America right and on the east side it's mountainous and that's where the capital is La Paz the west side or I'm sorry the west side is cap is mountainous but the east side is jungle like Amazonian so wow. the town that I lived in was kind of the second city like I said and and um, in size and in a very industrial town and a kind of a kind of new money a lot right. of drug money actually a lot of big houses on the outskirts of town were all cocaine money. And um, I lived in the very kind of small middle class uh, family. The, the middle classes are a pretty small group. 
And right. um, my family was called La Familia Liechtenstein. They were obviously German descent. It was intense. It was really, really intense. You know, going from Pennsylvania, <laughs> a mountaintop Pennsylvania, to, you know, a jungle town with La Familia Liechtenstein. It was, uh, yeah, it was intense. It was, it was great. And they were very generous to me. And I was very lucky to get such kind people to live with. But yeah, it was, it was intense. Do you think that that experience, because like 17, living a year anywhere in, in seven, at 17 years old is a mm. formative experience. Mm. And so how do you think it changed you, if at all? Well, it was, um, you know, the other thing that was hard for me is because I was sort of, you know, like a lot of kids at 17, a lot of gay kids at 17, I was also sort of struggling with my sexuality and kind of bursting at the seams, but also in the closet and confused and all of that. Mm -hmm. So to go into this kind of hyper macho culture was kind of somewhat intense. Also great because I escaped my high school where I was feeling very kind of pressurized around those issues and I needed to kind of escape that and escape my family. So in many ways it was good. It, it allowed me time to explore my feelings and explore myself, you know? And then in other ways it was very isolating you know, anytime you move to another country and you don't speak the language, it's very isolating. It was a lot of alone time. Not, you know, not, to not physically alone because the family was there and I met people, both Bolivians and other American students, mm -hmm. you know. So I had people that I, I had company. I, I didn't have anyone I was sharing, you know, deep stuff with. So it, I don't know, I think it, it helped me to form a kind of resilience. Mm also an ability to engage or, or strengthen my ability to engage with people, you know, because I had to uh, across a language barrier and you have to really work at it and be sort of creative. You know what that's like when you're trying to communicate. Absolutely. Cultural barriers and language barriers and all this, you have to get really creative. I think there was a lot of good that came out of it. I mean, maybe in some ways it was bad too, because I think I shut down in some ways emotionally, mm. but, I don't know. I think on the whole, I think it was good. Uh, when you say that uh, you kind of got away from your high school and all the pressures of the family and stuff, my experience being abroad is all the stuff that kind of makes you different at home. When you're abroad, your Americanness or your whiteness mm. or your whatever ethnicity you are, especially being American, kind of outshines any, mm -hmm. any other part of your personality to other people because they don't know you very well. And so... They don't hold you to the same standard yes. that they would someone else. And I found that really freeing. So when I had, you know, mild cerebral palsy and can only shake with my left hand and not my right, no one ever in Japan thought, you know, she's disabled. They thought, oh, I've been shaking hands with the wrong hand my whole life, <laughs> you know? You know, that's also a cultural thing on, on their side as well. I do feel like there's a freedom, but I also understand what you're saying about the isolation of mm. being in a place where you only understand probably in the beginning 10%. Mm -hmm. And then when I left Japan, I could probably understand 65, 70% of what was going on around me at any given time, which is nice because you learn how to spend time with yourself. But on the other hand, more complex feelings get pushed down because you yeah. don't have the ability to express them. I think that's yeah. right. That's exactly right. And not just complex feelings, but complex interactions, you know, mm -hmm. hunger for that kind of engagement, whether it's sort of intellectual or 
intimacy or whatever it is, because it's hard to, you know, the, the, it's hard to communicate. So mm. it's hard to get into those kinds of conversations and sense of humor is another thing, you know, your humor becomes a little bit more rudimentary, a little bit more, I don't know, it's actually a good, a good lesson for humor to, to remember that you can still be funny with very little, you know? Yeah. And uh, that, that was an interesting way that I was able to kind of engage with people. It was great. It was great. Are you, are you still, are you still in contact with them? Your host family? I'm not, I'm not. We're, you know, we're on Facebook. So occasionally there's interaction, but very little. Very mm -hmm. little. I kind of lost contact with mine. My, my host family were very lovely people. Uh, and they were full on board with trying to integrate me into Japanese society, uh, which was very lovely. But I kind of pulled away when they offered to arrange marriages for me. Wow. And I was like, no, that's, that's too far. I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, that is a step too far, maybe. <laughs> How interesting that they, they went that far, that they, you know, it just, it seems almost a little bit insensitive that you would they that they would expect that you would want to go that far you know well at that time i thought i was going to live in japan for the rest of my life okay and so she's like well okay well this is how you do it right had you had an arranged marriage you mm -hmm. would have i mean of course all the complications of the the engagement with that individual but in a way mm -hmm. do you think you would have had an easier time you know you say you left only understanding 60-70% after years mm -hmm. there. Do you think the arranged marriage would have meant that you would have got, gone deeper into the culture and you would have understood more? I would have, I would have understand their day-to-day -day more, the, you know, the day-to-day -day struggles of Japanese family life. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it would have been a happy marriage. I don't no. think... No. Um, I don't think I was uh, emotionally or mentally healed enough from trauma to, to do that. In a way, it seems very romantic and, and very, ooh, I get to be a Japanese wife kind of thing. But I had watched my host parents' marriage, who their marriage was an arranged marriage. And they liked each other well enough. But I wouldn't say that they were best friends or no. that they even were romantically involved with each other after children. You observed it and thought, this is not something I... I want. Yeah, it worked for them because uh, as I came to understand, relationships between parents and children are far more important than between spouses. And mm. I just feel mm. uh, with my understanding of how the world works, that's not a really great recipe for life satisfaction for anyone. That's mm. how you get a situation where your children never leave the house. Mm. Right. Mm. And then when they do leave, you don't know what to do with yourself because yeah. you don't know or like your partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, well, that's fine for you, then that's fine. But I, I knew that that wasn't something I wanted for myself. Right. And right. I had quite candid conversations with my host mother about it because one time, so she had arranged uh, uh, for me to get my picture taken in a kimono. Oh, yes. I think I've seen that picture. Yeah, I think you have too. I've, I've yeah. put it on Facebook. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, back when culture appropriation was okay. And the night before I was supposed to do this, her husband had come back from a six month long business trip in Thailand. And Six months? Six months. He spent six months out of the year wow. uh, working in Thailand. And so 
I assumed naively because I was sleeping in the kids' room and the kids were sleeping with uh, the parents in the parents' room that they might want to have a little alone time for some hubba hubba, right? right. So I just kind of quietly went to my friend's house and spent the night and came back early the next morning without really saying anything. Right. Right. And then when I came back in the morning, she screamed at me. She's like, why did you party all night? Your face is all puppy. You're going to look terrible for the photo. And it wasn't until I told her, I said, look, the only reason I wasn't there was I figured you and your husband might want to have some alone time together for some sex. You know, it's a small house. And she laughed so hard. She had to pull the car over. She's like... <laughs> <laughs> I so, love it. I, know. I love it. And she said, why on earth would you think I would want to have sex with my husband? I said, well, you have three children. And she said, yes, and we don't want to have any more. And I said, well, I have a friend in America who has five children and they have sex. And she said, obviously they want six. That was her way of thinking. Now that's not yeah. how everyone thinks, but. No, I hear that. I, I yeah, I, I, I've heard that before. Yeah, definitely. So I was like, yeah, it's not for me. I'm confused. Did you go and do an exchange, then come back to the U.S., then go back to Japan? I did. So I did a year exchange in university. Right. And right. Uh, then I came back, finished my degree, and went straight back uh, to work. Right. Did you have any uh, plans of using your Spanish for work after you came uh, back? You know, I, I, I definitely thought about it, but I... You know, this was before university, so I wasn't really, you know, looking to get career jobs right when I returned. I was looking to get like waiting table jobs, you know, while I did university. And, and one of the things I studied in university was Latin American politics. So I definitely continued to sort of fascination with that part of the world and, you know, used some of my Spanish in that. But after during university, I did a year abroad in England. Mm. So, you know, I was more interested, I think, in the international side of things than necessarily using my Spanish, you know? Oh, I understand. I think that, that a lot, myself included, after spending so long in Japan and then coming to the UK, it's where there's a lot of international people and not anyone is really from London kind of thing. I can see the appeal there, which is... Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think also, I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. You, you know, you're from a small town, small suburban town in the yeah. Midwest. And I grew up in a small suburban town in Pennsylvania. And I was never going to stay there. Right. That was never going to, that was never an option. And my family was never going to stay there either. You know, they, my parents were very much of this idea we may be here now but we are definitely not staying and you are not staying and they wanted us to travel and get out and move on uh you know so i've always wanted to pursue an international kind of culture and world and lifestyle and i i still that's still important to me today yeah i like to call that the 10 percent because 10 percent. so i feel like 90 percent of the world they're born they grow up and they die in the same area Mm. Right. Or if they move, it's it's really not very far away, distance wise or culturally. But then there are people like us where we're not, you know, what do you call them? Um, uh, third culture kids. 
We're well, third, third culture kids. Third culture kids uh, are kids that have they've spent a significant amount of uh, time growing up in uh, a country or culture other than what they were born in. Oh. We're very oh. similar to that, but we're not exactly that. No. Like, their their no. native skills on in bilingualism is uh, much more fluent. Right. Uh, but they're not really comfortable completely in either one country or culture. Right. And I think in particular, what people like that are not comfortable in is being surrounded by people who've been in one place the entire time. You know, that's yeah. the one. And, and I, I connect with that, you know, that sort of makes me a little bit uncomfortable, whether it's, you know, where, whether I know it or whether it's foreign to me, just being in this world that's so far away from an international kind of experience is really hard for me. You know what Theresa May said? She was such a bitch. Said, <laughs> what a bitch. She said, a citizen of the world is a, is a citizen of nowhere. What a bitch, right? Of course, this is part of her anti-Brexit, anti-immigration bullshit. But I thought, you know what? That is what's wrong with the, the world today is all these people who don't understand the benefits of internationalism and mixing and learning and experiencing other cultures and learning from others and respecting others. What it really is, it's an incredible lack of curiosity. Yeah. About yeah. anything outside your little bubble. I have family that still live in, you know, small suburban towns and I enjoy visiting their bubble and seeing what they get excited about. You know, and I understand why they stay in it. Have you ridden in their cars? Their seats are heated. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's a very, very gilded cage. Yes. And it's, it's a numbing experience and, and, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think we get sort of hungry for challenge in that <laughs> way, you know, and they get hungry for the comfort. You know, I often think after, I guess all grow, not all growing up, but certainly since Bolivia, when I was 17, pretty much every seven years I moved. Yeah. And maybe it was even in sometimes five years, you know, and I moved not all around the world, but I did go to England and I did move to different cities in the US. Mm -hmm. And now I've been in London for 20 years. And in fact, it's the longest I've been anywhere. Mm. In my, I've lived in any city. I still hunger for another big, big move, you know, somewhere really, really change it up, you know and either go to Spain or somewhere else, you know? And the skills and the experience of throwing yourself into a new world and having to start over, start fresh, really, I mean, it's hard work. And I got bored of it after a while, but mm -hmm. you know, now 20 years later, when I haven't had that, that intense experience, I really hunger for it. Do you think you would have stayed in, in London for so long if it weren't so close to so many other countries in Europe? No, I mean, that's the appeal is, is that, you know, I mean, firstly, it's an easier move from the US to London than it is from the US to Bolivia or, to, you know, I speak the language. So, right. you know, learning a new language gets harder and harder, I think. So I, I need to be really financially sound before I did that again. Sure. But obviously the great appeal to me 
of London when I moved here in 2000 was that it was so international. And I moved from New York. <laughs> I did. And I felt like, wow, I thought New York was international. London yeah. felt much more international to me. I mean, Same. whether it is or isn't, it felt that way because there weren't so many Americans, you know? You know, I was also a foreigner and I could see the foreignness and the international in a way that I couldn't see it maybe in New York, you know, even though yeah. definitely New York is super international. That's true. Have you tried studying any other languages other than Spanish? I haven't. No, I haven't. Okay. I haven't. And I, to my great... Shame, I have absolutely no French at all. And I, every time I go to France, I feel so humiliated. My friends live in, my good dear friends live in Paris. And so I, I see them somewhat regularly and I, I'm always so humiliated that I can't speak any French at all. So maybe, maybe this summer, I, I, I am due a, um, a, a week holiday in August in mm -hmm. France, in Bordeaux. So I might bring a little French language book or something to try and... I, I recommend it. I had a year where I was, like I had, well, two or three years actually, where I was kind of obsessed with all things French. I could see myself moving to France mm. because I knew I could, I could, I'm qualified to teach English there. I, I studied it not super seriously. I learned enough to go to Paris on my own and uh, the, the front desk guy tried to pick me up and my French was super basic. Like, I like movies, I don't like mustard kind of stuff. And he was all on, let me go to your room because I also like movies and I don't like mustard. And I was really proud of myself for being able to have that conversation. Yeah. Like, and I, I, I wasn't creeped out by this creepy guy at all. I was like, look at, the, look at this progress. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can turn someone down in, Fran in French as well. The hard thing about going to Paris and trying to practice your French is they immediately switch to English, don't they? Because they can't no. be bothered. Why would they? You know, this Well, that's not necessarily true. I think part of the reason is, is that the people that I met, they would talk to me in English for 10 minutes tops. Mm. And then after that, they're like, I'm tired. I can't do this anymore. Talk to me in French in French or leave. That was the attitude I got. Right. And they were usually pretty drunk by then. I think France is a great place because they actually expect you to speak it. Yeah, they do. They do. And fair yeah. enough. And they, they really don't like English that much. No. And so, and fair enough to that as well. Yeah. What language do you think people speak in heaven? Oh my God. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't think a lot about heaven. Um, well, I just, you know, whatever it is to you. The language you, you think in is the language you imagine and sort of fantasize in and dream in. I'm sure you had the experience in Japan when you started dreaming in Japanese, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. I had that experience as well, dreaming in Spanish. And it, what it, to me, it really was a kind of a breakthrough because it meant that now my unconscious was working in Spanish. And that was... Right. You know, and I think heaven is a kind of, un, you know, it's a, a kind of fantasy concept and a, you know, a place of your unconscious. So I, I imagine because my English is where I go when I'm in my kind of fantasy concept or unconscious world. It's in English. But who knows? Well, no, the reason the reason I'm fascinated by that question is because I had met a very religious woman in university from Costa Rica. Mm. 
And um, if you ever want to have a laugh, go with your international friends from South America and watch the movie Air Force One, rolling in the in the aisles, laughing so hard at all of it. Ridiculous. Is it, is it, remind me, is there like a South American terrorist or something? It's just how self-important everyone was. And then at the end, when Harrison Ford, my friends are all medical students, right? And so at the end, when he leaves the plane, right, he's hooked, he's got some harness on him and he jumps out of the plane and he gets whipped. And they all just pointed and said, that would have snapped him in half. Right. He would have been, he'd be dead. He never would have survived. It was funny because I remember when that movie came out, it was almost like a patriotic film. Yes, yes. And people felt an enormous amount of pride because one of our presidents was an Avenger. <laughs> like, oh and that yeah. was one of the first times I kind of had a, I had a sneak peek at 17, 18 years old at what the rest of the world thought of our leaders. Yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I don't want this to sound entitled, although I'm sure it will, but it's kind of a lot of pressure being American because there's all this kind of cultural importance around greatness, all this kind of like, your president is a superhero and you can't take anything lightly around your presidency or your country. Everything has to be so serious and so earnest and freedom and the American way. And, you know, these concepts are worth fighting for. And yeah, all that's true on some level. But yeah. what I love, you're right about South Americans. They're like, oh, fuck that. I, I don't give a fuck about my government. I don't care about my country. I don't care. I'm just moving around. It's, I just happen to be born there, you know, fuck patriotism. It, none of it means anything. And some of that, I think that lightness, that kind of casualness around your nationality, I think is super healthy. Absolutely. And kind of, in Japan, it's kind of interesting because they're like, well, I'm from Japan. I'm Japanese. What else do you want? I can't become more Japanese. And I think because America is an immigrant country, I kind of, it links to Christianity in a way, like anyone can become a Christian, anyone can become an American, but you kind of have to constantly prove to the people yes. around you that you are, that yeah. you belong there. Yeah, yeah. Whether or not you actually are. It makes it very performative, you know? Oh yeah. And that's what gets so tedious around it, you know? Everyone's putting their flags out and standing to attention and wearing pins and badges and brooches and reciting the fucking Pledge of Allegiance. It's just it's like, oh, come on already. What, yeah. what do you want from me? It's so tedious. I was just born here, you know? I didn't ask for it. One of my uh, best friends and mentors who, who passed away a few months ago, he used to say, thought it was a shame to cheer any Americans that win at the Olympics because, you know, they got the best training. Yeah. Except for after watching Athlete A, I, I'll change my opinion about that a little bit. But, but he said, I'm always going to cheer for the poor country that threw, yeah. threw a weight at him and said, here, get good. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I'm with him there, you know, like I'm not interested in the Americans, really. I want to yeah. see, yeah, some obscure country that you've not heard of rise to the top and really show the world that they can do it and they can compete at the, on the global level and, and win, you know, that's always inspiring. To me. And, it's, and it's also just so much more interesting. Yeah. And it's a story we haven't heard. Yeah. It's a background we're unfamiliar with. I think that's part of the reason why we left so long ago. <laughs> Absolutely.
Absolutely, yeah. Okay, my last question. So, okay. so what, what do people speak in hell? And we know that exists. <laughs> what do people speak in hell? I think they speak American. <laughs> That's it, a great you know, answer. It's not, it's not quite English. It's a type of English, but its own flavor. And it's relentless and it's loud and it's, you know, at a constant level, decibel, you know. Right. They don't speak, they shout. And, um, well, you know what it is. Just listen to Donald Trump. It's all that garbage talk. Just garbage spewing out, all, like 24 hours garbage. I recommend anyone Google uh, translating Donald Trump because oh, when I he first became president, all of these translators came and said, it's really hard to translate him because he's not saying anything. So how do you translate nothing? Yeah. yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about being in another country, I don't know if you, this was the case in Japan, but in Bolivia, again, this was in the 80s, it may have changed, but in Bolivia, you would go to the movies and they would be in English mm -hmm. with Spanish subtitles. Mm -hmm. And then, like, we would see, like, action films. And then my host brothers would come out speaking like the movie stars, but... <laughs> in Spanish, right? Right. So let's say Mr. T, you know, he has a very specific vernacular, but then, you know, we would watch something with, I forget what it was, it must've been a Rocky film or something with Mr. T and we watched it and it was all in English. And then they came out doing Mr. T, but in Spanish. So it was really a fascinating, you know, that's how, you know, they just did that. It was just, their brain just made that jump. But I will say like people like Mr. T, uh, Keanu Reeves, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they will always, Vin Diesel, they will always have a worldwide audience. Right. And the reason for that is they have a vocabulary of 50 words. Right, right. And these are all 50 words that, that, you know, so many people around the world have to study English. And even if they hate it, they have at least that amount of vocabulary. And it's so yeah. satisfying to be able to see it used by a native speaker and understand it instantly. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's why English is, I mean, I'm not saying anything people don't know, but that's why English is, you know, the most widely spoken language because it's the primary second language. Right. Not because it's the primary first language, although it may be the primary first language, but it's, if it is, it's not. Um, I don't think it is. It, I think I think I think a form of Chinese is actually. I think there are more Mandarin. There are more yeah, there are more Mandarin speakers than there are English speakers. Yeah. However, there are more non-native English speakers than there are native English speakers. Are there are there? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure, that would make sense. It's I mean that's yeah. So I mean I think that English is a, an amazing language in that sense and I love the study of languages and reading about the way certain languages rise and others fall and why and what makes certain languages more adaptable than others and, and what have you. You know, I, I think English has survived as long as it has because it's been so unpoliced, you know? Mm. And it's the, it's the policing and when the lockdown that happens probably in Japan, but definitely in France, that only kind of like threatens the longevity of your language, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. They say that uh, Japanese speakers might die out in a thousand years. Mm. I, What's the second language in Japan? That's an interesting question because they have a very, very small number of foreigners compared to uh, neighboring countries.
countries, but I believe it's either Korean or Chinese. Right. Yeah, but oh, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much, David, for, for joining me on this show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, well, thank you so much. It's so great to see you and to chat with you and, and also to talk about language and, and all this because, um, you know, we, it, you, it's not a topic you get to talk much about. So it's, it was great to do. Well, thank you. And where can people find out about what you're doing? I guess the best thing to do is follow me on social media at David Mills Department, D-E-P-T. So it's David Mills, D-E-P-T. And Twitter and Instagram are the best for me. Ah. Great, great. Do you have like a coffee cup thing or where people can do I'm not doing that at the moment, but um, if people want to send me money, just message me on Instagram and I'll <laughs> let you know how. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, David. Thank Thanks, you guys. For your day.